turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 15 through 16. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. And when you get there, if you'll just agree with me in prayer, we'll get started. Lord, we pray together and agree in prayer together with the words of the psalmist. God, you are our God and earnestly we seek you. Our flesh hungers for you, our souls thirst for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. But we have seen you in the sanctuary to behold you. And your power and your glory and your loving kindness has been found to be better than life. So our lips will praise you. We'll lift our hands to give thanks to your name. We will bless you for the rest of our lives. We ask, God, that as we open up your word, the soothing, satisfying, fulfilling, pleasant, refreshing water of your word, cascade into our souls and open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ today. That we might see what you are doing right in the middle of the places that we live. Things that we're doing, relationships that we're in, and that if need be, you would wake wake us up by the power of your Holy Spirit to be on mission with Jesus Christ as you are reconciling broken, rebellious people to yourself. And may we be among the first to say we were rebels and you turned our hearts towards you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together starting in Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 16. This is what Paul says. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. This is God's holy word. If you remember in the past couple weeks, kind of the themes that Paul was outlining as he was speaking, remember he's speaking to the covenant community of God, the church. He's speaking to those people who make up the bride of Christ, who have been saved by grace and choose to meet together and gather together as Christ's bride in local uh, areas. That's, that's us. We meet here as the church. And he's speaking to one and to all of them about how that looks when the people of God are called to live in a world that is hostile towards God. How does that change our behaviors? How does that change our disposition? How does that uh, change the way that we interact in relationships? This is, this is kind of where we've been. And if you remember last week, He was speaking, Paul the Apostle was speaking concerning a right way to judge. That there is a certain, there's a sense in which we must speak truth. Sometimes we must be confrontational. We must get in each other's business at times in order to see the sanctifying work of God among us. He calls us to be holy even as he he is holy. And so there are times in which we are called to proclaim truth one to another. Paul was clear last week that one of the right ways of judging is, first of all, it must take place within Christian relationships. 
In other words, as he would say to the church in Corinth, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? So if you want to know about the right way to judge, it's not anyone outside the church. Forbidden from condemn, uh, condemning or judging those who are not saved, who are outside of the church. So there is a right way to judge. It has to take place within Christian relationships. This is something that happens within our sanctified, holy relationships with one another, within the church, within our community groups, within a family of believers. It's something that happens in-house, not out-house. Something that happens among one another. Now, he goes on to say, pay careful attention then to how you walk. So if there was any question about the right way to judge, Paul deepens it and adds to the list. Not only is the right way to judge within other uh, pockets of Christian fellowship, but add this to the list, judge yourself first. Before we scrutinize or examine or correct or even rebuke, there has to be the sense that we are on the same level, that we too need the sanctifying work of God in our lives. And we must put this into practice, pay careful attention to how you walk, lest we deceive ourselves and fool ourselves into thinking that we are better than anyone else. This is where Jesus' famous words come into play in Matthew chapter seven. From the words of Jesus himself, he said, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye, hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is just Jesus in his most comical, sarcastic form. You are getting after that guy because he swerved into the other lane, but your entire life is saturated with sin? Bro, before you start taking slivers out of that person, how about this entire wooden desk stuck in your face? Jesus, he's a funny guy. First take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus doesn't forbid judging. He just tells us how to do it rightly. Judge within the church. Leave the outsider. God will deal with them. We judge each other, but first judge yourself, lest you be deceived that you've got it all together. Self-examination. To really, uh, instead of looking at how everybody else is failing miserably, to look inside and see how I'm failing miserably is one of the most humbling things I think I've ever done. I don't do it as often as I would like, but the times that I've done, it's actually changed the way I interact with other people. Even when we go through the scriptures day in and day out, verse by verse, the texts that uh, revolve around some heavy exhortation, you know, especially going through Ephesians 4 and 5, like, like, do this differently, you're not a part of that, change this, come on, move forward, put aside the old nature. Some of these heavy rebukes and exhortations to repentance by Paul, I find that the times that uh, I, I find naturally, and this is my natural inclination, Anytime I read the Bible, perhaps you resonate with this, but I start looking at how everybody else should change. 
Flee from greed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do that. (laughs) And I find that unless I begin to ask the Holy Spirit to expose my sick, twisted heart to how I am greedy, I will never be able to speak to others. I will never be able to preach to you with the heart of Jesus, with a heart of compassion, with a heart of prophecy, with a heart of mercy, uh, uh, and the heart of love, unless I first look inside at myself to how I need to be sanctified, to preach to myself, so to speak. We've gotta be a church that learns how to preach to ourselves. To say with the psalmist, King David, in Psalm 139, search me, God, Know my heart, test me, know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting life and in the everlasting way. Oh, that we would be a church on the coastland. As soon as we roll out of bed, we, the first thing off of our mouth is, Lord, how have we erred and how can you align us with your holy word? It's only when we're mourning over our own sin that we can speak lovingly about somebody else's. Paul goes on to describe this type of self-examination as a redemptive work of God, that to even get to that point where you're actually asking the Lord to change you is a redemptive work of God in your life the supernatural power of the Spirit. He, he labels it in that next phrase, pay careful attention then to how you walk, we'll come back to the, the wisdom, making the most of your time. He's literally calling this to, uh, another way you could, you could say this is redeem the time. What he means is what uh, our artist has wonderfully depicted in the stopwatch where it says redeem the time. Uh, Paul is using a phrase that's drawn from the commercial language of the marketplace of his day. He's using words and phrases that speak about this intense activity in which people would buy and exhaust all the possibilities available, just, just, take, just, just clean out the market of anything that there was. He uses that word to describe how we are to relate to the time that we have. You're 24 hours a day. Exhaust every possibility for the glory of God. Snap up every opportunity that comes your way. Now listen, that type of language, that type of mindset that Paul is speaking about, consider every hour, every minute of the day, every behavior, every thought you think, when you lie down in bed, when you wake up in the morning, when you're eating cornflakes before you come to church in the morning, when you roll off on your commute to go to work, consider every single opportunity that has the potential to be robust, and explosive with the work of God and his redemption. This might change the way a lot of us think. There is in the church today, in myself often, the sense that there is a divide between those things that are sacred and those things that are secular. But Paul seems to not not bifurcate either of those. He seems to think that there are opportunities in all places at all times. That means not just on Sunday morning. It's not like on Sunday morning we all come together and we do holy work and we're on mission and the gospel is going forth and singing songs and people are getting saved and then Monday, you know, we go back to our work. The mission of God goes forth. 
This is just one vignette of the life of the church of Jesus Christ. There are opportunities at all times, in all places, even the ones that you think are the most mundane and ordinary. In fact, Paul will go on in Ephesians chapter five at the end to speak about ordinary situations in life, speaking about spouses, speaking about family relationships, speaking about employers. For some of us, we are so, some of you are so discouraged in your walk with Jesus Christ that you see this. You see God on mission to redeem and to restore and to make a name for himself, expanding his kingdom, and your immediate tendency is to think God is on mission doing wonderful things, so I need to muster up something wonderful. God is radical, I need to be radical. God is changing the world, I need to change the world. And some of you are doing just that, and God is using you mightily. But for some of you, you're saying to me right now underneath your breath, I don't have a powerful platform. How in the world can I glorify God when I can't even speak to people? And so for some of you, perhaps you feel discouraged because you want to live for the glory of God. You want to live on mission for God. You just don't know how that connects to the ordinary job that you have and the ordinary lifestyle that you live. I've got news for you. The king of glory who died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later, who subjects all things to himself and is bringing everything in subjection to himself and who rules and reigns over the cosmos, dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. Paul said to the Romans that the same one who, ca- who raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit, resides in your mortal body, bringing life. It is not the calling or the vocation or the job that you have that is special in the eyes of God. It is the person at the job place. It is the fact that Jesus Christ, in all of his power and all of his glory, resides in you. I don't care if you are working a cash register at a grocery store in a town with a population of 20. God resides in you for his glory. And so the truth is, despite your vocation, despite what you do, whether you're a CEO doing powerful things or you're an overseas missionary doing stuff all over the world or you're a stay-at-home mom who never gets out of the house, God bless you. If you're a believer and if Christ resides in you, your life is rife with opportunity. Our problem is not the lack of opportunity because if Jesus is on mission everywhere, and he is, and he resides in you, then you have the capacity to be on mission everywhere you go. Our problem is not the lack of opportunity. Our problem is often a lack of wisdom. Because this is what Paul says, be careful, uh, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of your time. So there has to be in there this divine hinge which hooks up our mission with Christ to divine wisdom. What is wisdom? This is a confusing one. 
Wisdom is one of those things, it's like love. Whenever we read love in the scriptures, we attach to it whatever our definition of love happens to be for the day. And if you watch enough movies, and if you listen to enough pop music, if you listen to any music, actually, if you read books, if you get out of the house, you have probably a large swath of definitions of love. It could mean anything, and it seems to mean just about anything in our culture, but the scriptures have a definite description of what love is. It's the same with wisdom, right? How would you describe wisdom if someone asked you? Well, maybe some of us would describe it as, as intellect. Some of you are smart people, so we consider you to be wise. Or maybe you're not smart, you just know how to make good decisions. You're strategic. We would maybe call that wise. Maybe you're learned. Maybe you read a lot of books, and there are lots of books in your cave. Maybe we would consider you well-learned and wise, but again, that's not the definition that Scripture uses. That might be earthly wisdom, but Paul is speaking about the supernatural endowment of wisdom, and that's where it gets crazy. Walk not as unwise people, but as wise. The Bible has such a robust view of wisdom that you can't just tack onto it a simplistic definition. It spans the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Whole books are written about the wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes, uh, heart, uh, long sections of the Psalms, Proverbs, all about the wisdom of God. And to understand specifically what wisdom is, you have to translate it in the context in which it lies. So for us, it would be Ephesians. I wanna give you a glimpse into how Paul uses wisdom by reading you a few verses where he brings it up, starting in Ephesians, uh, you can turn there, turn back to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven through nine. And as we read, I want you to look for this common theme in which he uses wisdom. See if you could grab a hold of this. Ephesians chapter one, and we'll read uh, seven through nine. Paul says, we have redemption in him through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. So listen to what Paul is saying. He's saying that there is this connection between the wisdom of God that leads to a mystery of God being unfolded. Let's keep reading verses 17 through 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the perception of your mind might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Again, a spirit of wisdom that leads to something being revealed. Uh, pop ahead to Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. We'll read verse eight through 10. Paul says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. 
So now we have this glimpse that God is shedding light on the mystery by his wisdom so that in the cosmos, demons, angels, humans, creatures would be blown away on the world stage at what God is doing. And so according to Paul, wisdom and mystery are inseparable in Ephesians. Mystery is another tricky word, right? What do you think of when we we throw out mystery? I think of Sherlock Holmes. I think of uh, some type of mystery novel, you know, some type of story. I love those types of things. Sherlock Holmes, uh, what's that that guy's name? uh, Arthur Conan Boyle, not the movie. Stay away from the movies. It's the book, man. And there is this mystery that you are being pulled through, the design being you've got to and you kind of want to discover the, the enigma, you want to unpack the mystery, you want to figure it out. And that's any good mystery novel, it's any good movie with a, a mysterious twist. We feel this burden and this joy in figuring out what we do not yet know. We want to un cover what we do not already know. That is not the mystery of the Bible. God's mysteries are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we can't figure them out. That's why they're a mystery. And so the mystery that Paul often speaks of is in relation to the gospel. It is something that we couldn't figure out to save our lives and it must be revealed to us by divine revelation. So what's that make wisdom? Wisdom is God revealing to us something that is mysterious. Wisdom is God revealing to you something mysterious about his will. Sometimes that can happen in a circumstantial, a circumstantial uh, role, like in the middle of the day, you don't know something, God wants to show you something that you do not know, it's a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that in the summer. Other times, it's on a broad level. It's God revealing his divine plan of redemption to you in a special way. And that plan is largely in the scriptures, and he shows us by enlightenment through his Holy Spirit. Wisdom is God supernaturally unfolding his plan for us to enjoy and to walk in. And we'll talk about that more next week. But what Paul is saying at this point is, If you're a believer, part of the body of Christ, you should be paying careful uh, attention and self-examination to how you live and how you walk with that wisdom. In other words, you you must be looking at your life, inspecting your life to see Okay, if if wisdom is the revelation of the mystery of God's redemptive plan, then when we experience wisdom, we are making sure our lives align with God's overarching plan for the world. If you have the wisdom of God, you are constantly seeking to make sure that your life is aligned with the great things that God is doing around you. You are aligning yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are aligning yourself with the mission of God. You are fleeing from your old life and from your old sins and from your old habits for the joy set before you in Jesus Christ. You are chasing after the Messiah. You are enjoying Jesus. You are making disciples, teaching other people how to enjoy Jesus. You are excited about the kingdom of God expanding like an ocean across your city. You are aligning yourself with that. 
that's what wisdom causes in the believer. It causes you to see that and get excited about it. So if we're not excited about the mission of God, we should be asking for wisdom. Give us wisdom, Lord, for the times that I grow spiritually lethargic. God's plan is big enough to cover the CEO in his, apartment, uh, in his complex and in his workspace. It's big enough to cover the single parent managing their children. God's plan, we saw, uh, just to give you a rehash of Ephesians, you can get a taste to whet your appetite of what Christ is doing in God. Starting in chapter one, verse 10, he is bringing everything together in Christ. How does he do this? By dwelling in the hearts of sinners, chapter three, verse 17. Changing the hearts of sinners by filling us with the fullness of God, chapter three, verse 19. So that we can be changed, fall in love with God, follow God, and participate in what he's doing by walking in those good works that have been set before us from the dawn of time, chapter two, verse 10. Does your life align with that? Can you look at your Monday through Saturday and say, my life is aligned in some way with what God is doing in the world? Now at this point, some of you are once again discouraged because for a lot of us, our inclination is to go as big as we can. Just like I mentioned earlier. Well, if God's plan is crazy, then I need to be crazy. Well, if God is doing crazy, gnarly things, maybe I should be doing crazy, gnarly things. I'm not being crazy and gnarly enough. I'm not being radical enough. I'm not, being, I'm not going to enough places. I'm not doing enough things. I need to get busy. I need to do as much stuff as I possibly can. You know what you're doing right there? Especially if you're being disobedient to the calling he's already called you to, you're reverting back to earthly wisdom and trying to figure out a mystery that God has not written to begin with. And this is our tendency, is to write our own story thinking that it will somehow impress God. Maybe if I construct a mission, God will be stoked. Maybe if I save the world, God will be stoked. Maybe if I carry out this plan or do this thing, God will be stoked. Listen, God will be stoked when you get on his plan. But we have that crazy inclination to think that we can present to God something that we've figured out in hopes that he will be pleased. That's earthly wisdom and it's foolishness to God. It's a different wisdom. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks about our tendency to think much about our plans. rubbing against every fiber, every desire, every ambition of our society and culture. This is absolutely upside down thinking. Verse 19, uh, 18. Yeah, let's start in verse 18. Let's just read read all of this. Verse 19 through 31, this is large and in charge. But this is for you, so let this wash over your soul. This might be, this might be what you need to hear. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power, Christ is God's wisdom, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This one's for you. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us God-given wisdom. He became for us our righteousness, for us our sanctification, for us our redemption, in order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Do you hear what's going on right here? We come to the Lord with all of our special, clever, fancy plans, and we think that we are bringing something impressive to the Lord, and we sometimes grow discouraged when that plan does not work. Listen, God doesn't work according to our paradigms. Sometimes what is boring to you may be radical to God. It's not that God isn't calling you to something radical. It's that what might, you might think is radical is boring to God. And he orchestrates things in your life. And he causes you and calls you to things in your life to make sure that in, so, no, uh, in, in a certain way there will be no room for the people of God or for the heathen to boast in anybody else but God. He orchestrates his mission. He brings his church into that mission. He gives the people in his church, church callings in that mission in such a way that when we're done, when we're involved, when we're participating in that mission, we will fall on our knees and boast in the king of glory and no one other. So don't be discouraged. Some of you are. And I pray that this would encourage you that the craziest, most difficult, and most radical calling you will ever have in your life is what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Love God and love others. Enjoy Jesus and teach others how to do the same.
Now, for some of you, that will actually physically look crazy and radical. Some of you are called to Africa, to China. Some of you are called overseas to do wonderful things. Some of you are called to love orphans and widows in their distress. Some of you are called to be uh, on the crazy front lines of things. Some of you are called to be in uh, impoverished neighborhoods looking after the poor. Some of you are called to really, literally get your hands dirty. Others of you are called to raise your children. Some of you are called to bag groceries. Some of you are called to make coffee. And some of you are discouraged by the calling that you have right now because it's not as glamorous as you thought Christianity would be. But God's calling on your life is what makes your life special, not your job. And for some of you, it'll look crazy. For others, it'll be normal. Love God and love your kids. Love God and love your spouse. Love God and love your employer. Love God and love your employees. Love God and love that person on the highway who did you wrong. Love God and love the people that aggravate you because you're in sales. Love God and love them. To love God and to love others while simultaneously examining areas in our lives that aren't aligned with that is the craziest and most radical thing that you could possibly do. Try it. <laughs> just, just try it. According to Paul, that's redeeming the time. Paul is saying we need a church of people who will simply live according to their identities in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying we just need believers who will love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and will love their neighbor as themselves. And he says we need this in this day because the days are evil. It doesn't take but a few clicks of the mouse to uncover a few months worth of news headlines to figure that that's actually the truth. In fact, we could simply look at the area covering uh, between Christmas and Easter to find that to be true. December 14th, 2012, Newtown, Connecticut. Shooter storms into a school and commits one of the, the second deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. The victims, 20 children, six educators killed on the spot. March 2013, as the media was pressured to uncover the story, the uh, nation saw in horror and in disgust the Gosnell trial, which for many people simply shed light that abortion would be seen for what it truly is, a brutal killing of a life that is valued by a holy God. And most recently, April 15th, 2013. The Boston Marathon as people are crossing the finish line, two pressure cooker bombs filled with ball bearings and nails explode at 2.49 p.m., killing three people and injuring 264. Suspects allegedly kill an MIT police officer, then carjack a car, an SUV, and initiate in a brutal exchange of gunfire with the police in Watertown, Massachusetts, in one of the most unprecedented manhunts that our nation has ever seen. 
And that particular one, even though it's on the other end of the nation, it's very close to home because our friends are in Boston. Al and Nina Abdullah, who went to be a part of that work in Boston, were contemplating taking their three daughters to watch that marathon that day. They chose otherwise. There are people in this body, in our congregation, who ran in the marathon, who, by the grace of God, made it out safe. There are people in our body who left everything behind to be a part of the work of God in Boston, who were locked in their house in Watertown, Massachusetts, hoping for their lives and trusting in Jesus. A stone's throw away from the action and our society and our nation sometimes resorts to some of the most flimsy explanations for some of these things that happen around us. Whether it's the big crazy events in our nation or whether it's the events that happen in Santa Barbara and in Carpinteria and in Ventura, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, there's something wrong. But we people, tend to rationalize away some of the world's darkest events, offering surface solutions. If we do this, maybe everything will be okay. If we change that, everything will be fine. If we institute this, maybe everything will be peaceful again. Christian, we must maintain the word evil in our vocabulary. The Christian has a vocabulary to describe stuff that is otherworldly. Sin and evil, and Paul says the days are evil. Our society, apart from Christ, sometimes thinks that there are a few bad apples among us ruining it for the rest of us, but the Bible tells us that we're all bad. Now, you might give me a little pushback on that. Maybe you'd be horrified and disgusted, saying, how dare you lump me in the same pile as some of those other despicable people? I'm not that bad. I'm not like them at all. And that's true. We're not as bad as we could be. But we're worse than we think. And the Bible declares that we are all sinners who have rebelled against God and broken his holy law because we could not love him and we certainly can't love one another the way that we are designed to. And we need a savior who has done all of those things perfectly to die on the cross, to remove our sin, to give us a new heart so that we might love and enjoy God's commands for his glory in the world today. And so, for some of us, we just need to be saved by the power of God. For others of us who are saved, we need to constantly be self-examining our hearts to see, is my life lining up with the plan of God in this world? And wisdom is that thing which is going to help you do that rightly. Because without wisdom, we either err on one side or the other. Without wisdom, we either err on the side of hiding from the world. Okay, now that I'm saved, I'm like holy or something, and they're not, so. We become that type of person that becomes a hermit. We hide in our closet. We listen to Christian stuff. We do Christian things. We play Christian games. We eat Christian food. We have Christian habits. And we have never and never talked to non-believers or anyone on the outside. That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to get into the mess, man. 
Wisdom will keep you from hiding. It will, put, it will cause you to put on display a different way of life in the mess. That we are God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. But there's another side of the fence that we err on without wisdom. If we're not hiding from the world, we are in the world, in the mess, but we are on our high horse exposing and confronting and being obnoxious and getting in people's faces because we are holy. And so we overcorrect. Wisdom Wisdom tempers that as well. Because it causes us to realize that of all people, we are just as messed up. We are messed up, but Christ, who is able to redeem anything and anyone, has somehow, by his great grace, put us on a humble display, a community of natural-born enemies who would never do this, who would never, some of you would never be caught. You are on the other side of town. You would never be caught in a room with someone else in here had it not been for the gospel of Jesus Christ who reconciles natural-born enemies. And so when the, lo- the world looks in at the church, what they should see are natural-born enemies who have been reconciled by God to love God and to love others. And that is a display, radical display of God's kingdom. But that is easier said than done. I throw around terms like, you know, Jesus said, blah, 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 blah. Love your enemies as if it were easy to do when throughout the week I struggle to love my best friend? How many of us this past week have struggled to love our spouse, struggled to love our kids when they did us wrong, struggled to love our our close friends, our confidants, our brothers and sisters in Christ when they've wronged us and disappointed us? If we can't even love the people that we love the most, how can we love our enemies? Exactly. It is impossible except by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who changes hard hearts and puts his heart into theirs. And for the believer, for the person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who has been radically changed to love for the first time, Paul goes on to say in our verse that we now have a continual access to that power to live in that way on mission for the rest of our life. In fact, he says it in the verse before us in Ephesians 5, 15. And that power, that access to power is actually encapsulated in a single word. Can you find it? It's that cute little adverb, then. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Something about the Bible is that it is separated into commands and declarative truth statements. We could say there are imperatives, things that we're called to do, and there are things that are declared to be already true of us and of God. And the power to live according to what God calls us to do is wrapped up in the indicatives we are able to do based on what is already true. And so for the Christian, we should be filling and feeding our mind on what God has already declared to be true. You wanna know what's true about you? Let me read you a few lines in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one, verse nine through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will 
to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Ephesians chapter one, verse 20 through 21. You wanna know what's true? You live in an evil world, in an evil place. Listen to what is indicative of you and of Christ. God demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You say, I'm afraid of this world because it's evil. God declares, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What is true of you causes you to do the things that you do. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, two. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world. Ephesians chapter two, verse four through five. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. It gets even better. Ephesians chapter two, verse 18 and 19. For through him, we have access by one spirit in the Father, so then you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. He doesn't stop there. Ephesians chapter two, verse 22. You're also being built together by God's, uh, dwell, to be God's dwelling in the spirit. Chapter three, verse 12. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And on and on and on it goes. A bold declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God in his infinite wisdom chooses to save sinners who could not save themselves. And our response, Paul says, Ephesians five, verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. You wanna know what's true for you? You wanna know what's true about you? You used to be dead in your sins and you used to belong to a kingdom of darkness, but you have been raised in Christ and you have been transferred to a different kingdom. So you're still in a kingdom of darkness in the world today, but you are a citizen of heaven, waving the badge of heaven that you belong to God. And God has put you where you are now to spread that light. And the Bible declares that where the light goes, the darkness flees. Do you believe that? The only thing we should be afraid of in this life is to go through our entire life and reach old age and die and look back at what was behind us and realize that we moved, we missed a mighty, powerful move of God that was right under our noses. Everything else has been taken care of. If you're a Christian, you have been saved by grace. But if you wanna experience that, you gotta press in with your whole life. If that's something that you believe, let's press in today for the glory of God, 
by the grace of God and for the good of his people and the world in which we live. Heavenly Father, don't let us miss out. Let your spirit fall upon us and open our eyes to see the mission of God going on all around us in the nooks and crannies and give us the power by your Holy Spirit to partake in that. You are reconciling the world to yourself. You are making a famous name for yourself. And Lord, if we're asleep, wake us up. Cause us to awake and no longer be sleepers, for the Messiah shall shine on us. In Jesus' name, amen.